everyone, welcome to True Crime Japan, the podcast about crime, crazy, creepy stuff in Japan. I'm Gigi. And I'm Dino. And we're here today with another episode. Yay! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so, what's today's episode? Okay. So everyone who's listening now, just let me finish before you decide to skip. <laughs> <laughs> to don't listen to this episode. Yes. Okay. Uh, is, um, this is going to be our UFO episode. But wait, wait, don't don't skip yet. No, not yet. I think we discussed in the third episode the psychic spot disappearance. At least I think I mentioned my personal feelings about like UFOs and the paranormal. Uh-huh. That I'm kind of an agnostic about it so i can totally believe that somewhere in the vast universe there are other forms of life just Uh based on the probabilities (laughs) but (laughs) but uh in terms of like their interest in us i think they would you know we're just not that interesting as a species (laughs) humanity yeah so the idea of like aliens coming to earth i'm a little skeptical but I did want. There are a few like really interesting UFO stories from Japan that are like quite literally like unidentified object stories, not like from another planet, but just an object or craft that people are like, "What the heck is that?" Might be a North Korean drone. Yeah, who knows <laughs> what they were. Um, so that's what we're talking about now in this episode. So okay. it's going to be uh, a bit of a double feature or even triple feature. So we've been, I I don't think we want to do actually any other episodes devoted to UFOs. We'll just get it all out of our system in this one episode. I know I won't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I thought it's best rather than doing like a couple of smaller episodes just to put them into like one episode and people can make their decisions accordingly. Yeah, so if you enjoy UFO related stories, join us if you don't. Come on, it might be fun. Yeah, <laughs> Give us a still chance. join us. Because they're not like uh, traditional, like what we talk about in the West when we usually talk about like UFOs. Okay. Actually, I don't think any of the people involved in the actual stories Actually thought, thought of aliens. Yeah, they weren't really thinking of aliens. They were just like, what the hell am I seeing? Okay. Um, so they're really just like good stories that I wanted to tell. So the first incident we're going to talk about it's called the Kara incident Kara is the an area of Kochi city which is in Shikoku Mm -hmm. Shikoku is kind of a really large island off the coast of the main island of Japan and it's what's famous for like udon noodles and um basho poems (laughs) haiku poems it's quite large and it's pretty rural so this case is set in August 25th Think of Hot Summer Nights in 1972. Uh, We're going to be following a 13-year-old junior high school student named Michio Seo. And as he's walking home from school, he passes a rice field. uh, And he looks up and sees a strange, small object, like, flying around the rice field. Mm. So he watched the the craft. It was, like, mechanical-looking. It wasn't like an animal. Um, and it was kind of zipping back and forth above the rice paddy. And he describes it as making like these hairpin turns. Like it would go one way and then it would zag another way. Like a Roomba. Uh, like a Roomba. He describes it as like a bat chasing insects. Oh, okay, okay. Like zipping around, chasing insects. 
Um, he says the object resembled a dull. It had like a hat shape. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like a silver metal. So if you think of a hat, it had like a flat bottom mm-hmm. to it, and like a, the brim, like a narrow lip or brim on the side. So it kind of. If you remember a couple years ago, Pharrell Williams wore that hat <laughs> to the Grammys. Um, it's like that shape okay. and, and roughly that size, but it made a metal. So he stopped and kind of watched it flying around for a while. And then he started to approach the object. Um, it's still in the air. It's still moving. Um, but before he could get too close, the object like shoots this blinding beam of light towards him. And he says, okay, time to get the hell out of Dodge. <laughs> and he, he just takes off and runs home. Later that day, Seo, Michio Seo is talking to his friends about the flying objects. Um, this is 1972, and the term, like, UFO, hadn't really entered, like, the Japanese language as, like, a household word mm-hmm. uh, at that time. But they were still kind of intrigued by it, and... At around 7 p.m., Seo and his friends uh, Hiroshi Mori, Yasuo Fujimoto, uh, Katsuoka Kojima, and another friend who's only ever been identified as Yuji um, <laughs> set out to the rice field to uh, try to search. So it's it's already like very Goonies, very like Stranger <laughs> Things. Um, when I was reading like articles about it online, some of them said that this was the inspiration for Super 8. Oh, yeah. Um, the J.J. Abrams, Abrams movie. movie. Um, I can kind of see that. I don't know if that's true or not, but similar themes. So about an hour later, uh, they all spot the same object flying back and forth across the same rice field, rice paddy. So it's about 60 feet away from them. Uh, and it's lighting up with this, like, pulsing silver light mm-hmm. as it's kind of flying around. So at this point, it, it's summer, but it's nighttime. It's getting darker. Sun is setting. And it's kind of lighting up. So one of the boys tries to kind of approach the object. He gets closer to it. And it makes this loud pop sound. And it starts to glow blue. <laughs> Um, so <laughs> again, they're like, okay, time to get out. <laughs> and they all run without looking back. After that, you know, kind of the seed has been planted in these kids' minds. <laughs> and they're like, okay, we have to, we have to find, find it. it and figure out it. what it is. Um, so they return several times looking for the object, but they don't find it until over a week later. So at uh, 9.30 p.m. on September 4th, 72, um, they once again see the object flying, and this time it's kind of low to the ground. It's about three feet from the oh, okay. actual um, the water of the rice paddy. Mm-hmm. So it starts to glow, and then it begins to kind of zoom towards them. <laughs> and it's coming at them as oh. the group so they all kind of scatter and i guess it goes like kind of between where they were standing so they once again like retreat <laughs> <laughs> they go home Run. um once they get home they uh they gather up their courage and they say okay what we need to do is take a picture of it okay so they grab a camera um and they spend uh this becomes like their obsession 
so they spend every waking minute um, trying to go to the field again to like uh, capture this thing on film. So their surveillance begins the next evening, but the object didn't return. Uh, didn't return uh, until September sixth, uh, two days later. When they get to the field, they find the object just laying on the ground this time. Oh, um, it died. So, yeah, it appeared to, like, it crash-landed, they said. <laughs> uh, so they take a photo of it um, uh, as it's laying there before they approach. One, because it's at night, they're using a flashbulb. So once the flashbulb goes off... Um, the object starts spinning like really rapidly spinning around and around and it shoots straight up into the air so they take another uh photo like there is this kind of firework that does that it just spins (laughs) and then it goes yeah it's pretty yeah kind of fanciful some of the stuff but it shoots up in the air and they take a picture of it in the sky and uh, from here, the accounts get a little murky, but <laughs> what they say is if it, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, if it wasn't murky already, but <laughs> <laughs> what they say happened next is the object emitted this light even brighter than the flashbulb's burst. So the flashbulb goes off, and then the light, the object comes back alive, and it uh, seems to be aware that they're present of their presence um (laughs) the thing knows yeah so it's makes this really bright burst of light and then it plummets straight down to the ground again and they said it just kept spinning in place uh like was it was it floating or was it like on the floor on the ground on the ground like so on the ground it's just like spinning in place like almost burrowing into the ground okay um until it stopped moving so after it stopped moving, then one of the boys, um, 14-year-old Hiroshi Mori, walks up to it and he picks it up with his bare hands. What a great kid. Yes. <laughs> so um, he said he could feel like something moving inside the object uh-huh. as he was holding it, like uh, something spinning or moving around inside. So they take a photo of him holding the UFO. Um, so when you Google this case, you'll see the photos um, that they took. Oh, so there's actual photos of yeah. the thing. there's, like, photo evidence. Um, so there are two sets of photos you'll find, uh, when you, like, Google this case. So you'll see, like, these newspaper print photos, which are the ones they actually took. Mm-hmm. And then there uh, is another set of color photos that are, like, really, um, like, very, uh, detailed, like, like very clear color photos of it just like on a table and those are made those are images of like a reconstruction oh. of the object that so was it's not the actual it's not the actual object it was for like i think a tv documentary so it was just based on their account mm. so they kind of recreated what the boys said they saw so the real photos that they actually took the one of it in the air and on the field are just they're very blurry um, hmm. it's... Well, it was the 70s. <laughs> yeah, it's the 70s and it was reprinted in newspaper print, so... <laughs> what about the original photos? Why we don't have the original yeah. photos, kit? So it was, like, a white outline of a hat, like, this blurry little smudgy outline of a hat-shaped <laughs> object in the field. 
But the one of him like actually holding it is pretty clear. Yes, uh, the one you're showing me now on your phone. Sorry, um, I had to look for it. I was very curious. <laughs> Um, so he's like holding like this small metal hat shaped thing. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, you don't actually see it flying. No, he's holding it like from the rim. It's just, yeah, in his hand. And then the recreations are very clear, but they're just based on accounts. So you don't know how accurately those represent that, the object. Mm -hmm. So from there, they carry the object home and, uh, they measure it it uh, they weigh it so it weighed about three pounds 1.3 kilograms um it's pretty light yeah it was pretty light it um was about seven centimeters tall uh, three inches tall and uh 15 centimeters like six inches in diameter if you look uh oh sorry you don't, not if you look but on the bottom they looked and uh, it had like these like ridges on the bottom of the brim and then it had like a kind of a circular arrangement of like 31 small holes and they're like the kind of air vent holes that you see mm -hmm. on electronics like on the back of electronics they're just like where like if there was uh I don't know, hard drive, like, there's usually, like, a lot of heat produced by it's the like electronics. The, it's so more they, like where the fan is. Yeah, and where it the have fan like little will holes blow the, the casing of the fan. Hot air out or pull But you like a computer in. fan or a TV fan or something like that. Yeah. And then, and this is, like, a weird part, is it had this, like, picture etched into the bottom. And it said that they were sort of, like, waves. To me, they look like waves. Um or clouds uh, they look it, like well they made me think of how a kid will draw scales yeah they're very like childlike in a way yeah um and it's sort of above there's like a line or a couple rows of those and above that there's like a, something that looks like a bird or like a flying object and then something that people say it's like a flower bud it kind of looks to me you know what it looks to me how Hanna-Barbera will draw a hammer on the Flintstones. Ah, uh, like kind of a rock like, yeah, tied to like a, a stick. Yeah, it's like a stick and a rock. Yeah. That's what it looks to me. Yeah, it's like they're, they're kind of crude looking drawings on the bottom. Mm -hmm. There was no like visible propulsion system. Like it didn't have a propeller. It didn't really have like a obvious way that it would fly. Mm-hmm. So it seems from their accounts that it flew by like rotating, yeah. like by spinning around, it like displaced the air under it to mm -hmm. like push it up. But yeah, it doesn't seem like a typical thing you would see in like a toy. No. Well, it doesn't really look like a toy. It doesn't look toy. like a toy either, I guess. Um, they said like something inside of it rattled around when they shook it. So Poor little he alien. Was, <laughs> Probably he was just like, stop shaking. Well, that's the thing. Like, if it flew by, like, spinning around and around and around. That was one dizzy motion. Yeah, assuming if it, there was an alien in it, it had our same biology, then it would be really dizzy. Maybe the inside didn't rotate, just exterior. Just the exterior. And the inside yeah. was kind of, like, floating on its own. No. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, Come on, it's a, it's a flying... <laughs> hat it's Anything a flying hat be. yes <laughs> uh yeah 
So they showed it to Fujimoto's father, Mutsuo. He was the director of the local center for science education at the at Kochi City. Mm, convenient. Yes, convenient. So the senior Fujimoto very like briefly like looked at the object and he says it was like of little significance, which <laughs> So what's this trash you brought me? Yeah. Which Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Very I, interesting here. Kirk, go out and play. Yeah. I don't know if that means like he just didn't care or it kinda of discredits like the significance of the object. Like, oh if it was like really some thing you've never seen before, you'd be like, Oh, what the heck is it? Um, yeah. You know? But to be honest, if a little kid came to me we say, look, look, I found this, and it flies, and it spins, and it shoots lights. And I just see, like, that piece of metal, and I'm like, yeah, kid, sure. <laughs> tap, tap in the head, go out and play. Yeah. Like, <laughs> His quote, he has a quote about it. He says, like, it looks sort of like an ashtray, um, like, made of cast iron, but he said it was, like, too light to be cast iron. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said... Like, it was two pieces that were kind of sealed together. Um, You couldn't open them. Mm -hmm. Like, I guess the hat-shaped piece was one piece, and then there was, like, a bottom that was, like, sealed onto it. Yeah. With the holes in it. He said... He did say, like, inside there were pieces, like, similar to a radio. Um, So he did open it? He says he didn't open it, but I think what he means is, like, looking through the holes in the bottom, he could see, like recognizable electronic pieces hmm. inside kind of just rattling around inside um but he says like he i didn't give it any more importance to it but now i regret you know not having looked at it more closely um yeah hindsight's twenty twenty, pal <laughs> <laughs> uh so that night mori hiroshi mori one of the kids wrapped the object in a plastic bag and he placed it in his backpack and this is where the story gets like even crazier. So later, the object disappeared without a trace. So he had it in his backpack, wrapped in a bag. Um, when he went to check it again, it was gone. Hmm. Just dissolved? Totally gone. Yeah. Huh. But it wasn't long before they encountered the object again. So it's always these kids in this one place. Huh. So they ended up seeing it at least six more times. Um, they could never catch it again? Oh, no. Oh, no. not They caught it again. Oh! Okay. <laughs> uh, so they figured out, by just kind of observing it and trying to catch it, that it never appeared on rainy days. Um, so they thought that the object kind of, like, feared water, or hmm. that uh, whoever was controlling it, like, it wouldn't work in water. I guess... Maybe falling water on top of it wouldn't work because it was flying on top of a rice paddy, which is essentially water. Yeah, but it was above it. It wasn't, like, getting wet. I know, but if you are afraid of water, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't fly on top of water either, just in case. Just, you know, things can go wrong. Oh, no, water. Maybe that's how it flew. Because, like, it seems like it had problems flying on land. Hmm. Like over land, but it seemed to do well flying <laughs> on water over the white, the water. wet rice paddy. Huh. So yes, they f- figured out that it maybe it didn't like water. So 
they came armed on September 19th with a bucket of water <laughs> and some wet rags. Um, so, and as luck would have it, they found the device. Uh, it was just sitting on the ground again. Okay. Motionless. So they kind of all piled on top of it and covered it in these wet rags. And then they dumped the water bucket over that. So that seemed to like kind of deactivate it for a while. <laughs> so they turned the object over and they started like for filling those little holes, like just pouring water into the holes. Oh no, they're drowning <laughs> the little alien! Sadistic kids. Yeah. <laughs> so as soon as the liquid like started entering the inside of the device, they said it made like a sound, like a buzzing sound, like cicadas. Little jails of pain. <laughs> and. Yeah, I think it was, like, the electronics frying. Um, so they said, yeah, it made a cicada-like sound, and it started to glow brightly inside uh -huh. the object. After taking the UFO back to uh, Kojima's house, um, they ran some wire through the holes in the bottom, and kind of, they were, like, dangling it upside down. I mean, basically, at this point, it was a lot less scientific and a more, and more like, just kids playing yeah, with a new toy. Kids just being sadistic. Thank goodness at least it wasn't an alive thing. Uh, yeah. I mean, it sounds like it was a machine. They looked at it as a machine, not a living thing. So they ran wires and through the holes and hung it upside down, and the top and bottom sections started to become separated. Okay. From each other. So through the opening, they could see like electronic components inside. Um, like recognizable as electronics. Like uh -huh. it wasn't like, oh, what's that thing I've never seen before? <laughs> it was like, oh, that looks like a Alien radio. Technology. Yeah, I think it was like circuit boards and stuff. So they also <laughs> did a number of quote unquote experiments, <laughs> like hitting it with a hammer. Um, so scientific. Yeah, which they said didn't have any effect. Like it didn't dent it or scratch it. Oh. They tried to put it in the oven to see what like the temperatures it would withstand uh, but kojima's um mother um <laughs> put the kibosh on that she didn't she was like no no, no. stay away from the like, no. kids yeah at this point like two actual adults have seen the object mm -hmm. you know they didn't see it flying like the kids did but you know it existed so she, yeah, she also refused to let them put it in the refrigerator because <laughs> um, they thought, like, oh, if we keep it in the refrigerator, it won't be able to escape. Like, somehow <laughs> it's, like, getting out of the bag or the backpack on its own, but... But the fridge? The fridge no, no, no. is, like, a safe. You have full person. can't get out. They also decided... Okay, this time <laughs> we're going to cash in on our fame, uh, which in early 70s, like junior high school uh, sort of parlance, that means they're going to take it to school and show it, <laughs> show it off. So they were going to do that. This, I guess this was the start of the weekend, and they were going to take it to school the following Monday. So the object was given to Seo and Mori, for safekeeping um, while the other kids went home for dinner and to do chores and stuff. Mm -hmm. Seiwa Mori, like, they felt the object was secure in their room, so they decided to relax and read some comic books. They weren't really paying attention. 
when the group returned later, uh, they looked underneath the rags. I guess they had like kept the wet rags on it, but there was nothing in there. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. It was gone again. You know, of course they were pissed, but hmm. uh, there was nothing they could do. And this is where it gets like a little fanciful for me, but this is a couple of hours later, Kojima and Mori were playing ball outside of Mori's house and Kojima ran over the fence to catch a ball, like to the other side of a fence. And there he found the object just laying hmm. on the ground. Didn't make so it far. It, it didn't go far. This is like what kind of bothers me about the story is because it's always these kids and it's these same kids over and over and over again. <laughs> like why not any other people in the village? Um, but they took it back inside and then the they remained, they managed to keep it for I think a couple of days this time. So then the night of September twenty second, uh, they gather the whole crew. I think five of them decide to go on a bike ride into Kochi City. So they decide they would all uh, take turns carrying the object. Mm -hmm. So they no longer left it alone. Like, somebody Mm -hmm. had to be with it all the time. Keep an eye on it at all times. Yeah. To prevent it from escaping, (laughs) they decide to just keep it in water all the time. So they put it in a plastic bag full of water, um... And which they thought would just, for some reason, that seemed to disable it. Oh, and if, if that weren't enough, they like tied the bag with string and knotted it around several times. And the other end of the string they tied to their wrist hmm. of whoever was like watching it at that time. So you, they were like, it's not getting away without my hand. <laughs> um, so they would switch as they were riding their bikes through town from rider to rider they would like untie it from one person's wrist and tie it to the next person's wrist and they keep it in the like i guess the basket of their bike as they get closer to a local bicycle repair shop the final rider and i don't think it ever says who this was but he says he felt the string jerk like on his wrist mm-hmm. suddenly jerked with like a huge force and he immediately calls out to everyone and they all skid to a halt like right there in the street <laughs> And they instantly, like, they all come running up and they untie the string and the bag. Uh, but when they look inside, um, it's, gone. it's gone. So all the knots were still tied, but huh. the bag, the object was gone. And, it just uh, doesn't fly, it also teleports. Yes, so they never saw it again after that point. Huh. <laughs> he was like, you know what, kids, screw you. You yeah. don't leave me alone. <laughs> Well, they probably, find you know, they dump, kept dumping water and hitting it <laughs> with a hammer. Um, so this kind of just, for years and years and years, it was just like a local story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think it got picked up in a, like a manga comic book about UFO stories. Mm-hmm. And in 2000, it sort of had an underground following. And in 2007, uh, 35 years after the incident, the... JSPS, the Japan Space Phenomena Society, Mm. decided to reopen the case. (laughs) So they send um, Kazuo Hayashi, who's the head of their Osaka chapter, to re-interview all of the witnesses from 1972. And they all stick to their story. 
even as adults 30 years later 30 plus years later they're like yeah no that's what really happened he also kind of interviews around the area to see if there are any similar incidents and he did find one incident four years later in Mm. uh, 1976 a nine-year-old girl named Sachiko Oyama stepped out of her family's home to look for her cat and she noticed this bright yellow kind of luminous like glowing object in the sky Um, when she walked out into the street to get a better view the object sort of descended from the woods and struck a tree nearby and kind of landed at her her feet but she said it made no sound when it hit the pavement it just sounds like it glided or softly landed on the pavement she said it was about 15 centimeters or seven inches in diameter so roughly the same size um she said she touched it with her finger (laughs) it was solid but it was covered in like slime she (laughs) said uh which at that point she got freaked out and she ran (laughs) (laughs) over her shoulder she says she saw it start to glow and spin um counterclockwise a couple of times and it shot straight up into the sky (laughs) <laughs> those are the details of the case now we have our theories as to what <laughs> what this thing actually was so of course the most obvious one is hoax uh so there's some <laughs> yeah there are some rumors uh circulating that um suggest like locally i guess that suggests the object was just like uh kids like toilet you know like those seats those little seats for kids mm-hmm. before they can use like a real toilet um, with uh, parts of like a watering can, like plant watering can mm-hmm. kind of taped onto it or something. But I feel like if that were true, you know, the um, the other kid's father, Fujimoto, um, who was the, the director of the Center for Science Education, you know, wouldn't he have like kind of quickly figured yeah that that, it was just that out so yeah uh i'm not sure about that one but you know if that was true it was a pretty elaborate hoax to be carried out for like four decades by a bunch of teenagers yeah early teens Hmm. you know i do think like two adults saw it so if it was just a bunch of like ordinary components like pieces of everyday objects it'd be pretty obvious to the adults yeah um but it is curious that the adults never saw it fly yeah as i mentioned that bugs me <laughs> um the next <laughs> the next Maybe option is the magic of imagination to make it fly i guess so um the next option is that it's real this is a conclusion that the kid the actual kids themselves in the 70s came to that it was some kind of remote controlled surveillance Hmm. tool which i think is actually a pretty sophisticated theory for some 13 year olds in the 70s to come up with why why will it be surveilling the patty field the ice patty yeah i wondered if it could uh, if we want to go with the idea that it's real uh but it's not from another planet then like could it be some early drone prototype like some military or industrial prototype that was just being tested 
But how does it disappear, though? Yeah, how does it disappear? Like, the more fantastical aspects of the story just don't make sense. And then, like, if you want to say, okay, well, maybe that ne- that part never happened, but the object existed, like, what kind of, like, military prototype has an art project on the bottom <laughs> of it? <laughs> you know, like, the waves and the bird and the flower thing kind of sketched into the bottom. Yeah. My pet theory is that it's the work of, like, some kind of uh, local tinkerer, like, some kind of local gadget maker that Hmm. put all these different pieces together as, like, a hobby, and it just... Made it fly? And it flew, but just no one had ever seen it, (laughs) seen anything like it before. But I still don't understand the mechanics of how it flew, yeah, no. Like it, like the it just seemed to spin in place. I could see it being like a frisbee, where there was someone like off to the side of the rice paddy, like in the woods, kind of tossing yeah. it, and they just to the kids it looked like it was flying past, except that they said that it could move and shift back and forth and go up and down hmm. and hover in place, which you can't do by just like tossing an object so then i think like was it some kind of hover craft that could like float over the water so i don't know could it be a prank like played on the kids so they thought it was real but they were being pranked (laughs) that kind of thing i do wonder like why only these kids and again and again and again yeah there weren't any more kids in this village or what yeah or any adults, for mm-hmm. that matter. You know, you do have to think, like, maybe if it was an adult... Like, if I were walking home from work, and I saw, like, some object zooming around... Like, one, I probably wouldn't notice, because I would be listening to podcasts. And <laughs> <laughs> I would have no no awareness of it. <laughs> but even if I did, I would probably just say, like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> Whatever. You know, I don't think I would stop and oh, well. report it. Yeah, I know. Any theories? I don't know. I just... I'm gonna go where there was a little poor alien living inside and the kid was just growing it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. So, our next story is called the um, Utsurobune, or it translates as Hollow Ship. Mm-hmm. And this is one that the um, UFO community, the ufology community, mm-hmm. have kind of <laughs> latched onto in recent years is like an early historical report of a third encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, but the people who were interacting with with the Utsurobone at the time, like they didn't think it had anything to do with space. Hmm. In this story, uh, it takes place in Hitachi province, which is the eastern coast of Japan. Uh, so if you kind of have in your mind like where the... Uh, where Sendai is, where the Fukushima disaster kind of took place, it's like around that area, roughly, along that same strip of coast, okay. southeastern Japan. In 1803, in Hitachi province, an unknown object allegedly washed ashore. So accounts, written accounts of the tale appear in three texts. The earliest one is from 1825, and that's the most detailed account of it. 
there's like similarities between each text so it's likely that they all came from the same source but it's never identified like where originally it came from mm -hmm. whether it was just like folk tales or whether it was like written down somewhere the setting is february 22nd 1803 and some local fishers discover a kind of a strange looking ship drifting in the waters hmm. um so they tow the vessel back to land they report that it was 3.3 meters about 11 feet high and 5.45 meters, uh, about 18 feet wide. Hmm. And uh, they said, like, the shape was basically like a big bowl. Um, it was just shaped like a big bowl on the bottom, and then the top were, like, windows all the way around. Mm -hmm. Like wooden windows. The lower part, the base, was, like, covered in these metal plates, um, so it was never meant to go like far out to sea. It was meant to be like close to land. So if it hit rocks, um, it would just bump against the metal. It wouldn't like break the ship up. Okay. They think. Hmm. So the top part where the windows were, they said it was made of wood and then it had like plates of windows, like what we think of, like with the six like rectangular panes of glass and there's like the wooden frame like a typical window oh like what's this are those, uh, those called like garden windows or something like that bay windows maybe bay windows are when it comes out of the house oh well i don't know yeah um, kind of like that but in like a sort of a circular shape all around the top mm -hmm. there are some drawings of it maybe that's like Something we'll put on the Facebook group. <laughs> <laughs> but they said that it had these windows of glass um, on the top to let in light, glass or crystal, and they'd never really seen anything like that on a ship before. Uh, so, because, because it had these windows. Yeah. <laughs> when it had these windows, they could look inside, and uh, inside the Utrebonne, the walls on the inside were all covered in text of like some unknown Creepy. language of uh, symbols and they saw a lot of like items such as some bed sheets a bottle filled with water which they said had like 3.6 liters of water there was some cake and uh <laughs> <laughs> kneaded meat I don't actually know what needed meat is. I think it's some kind of preserved, <laughs> <laughs> some kind of preserved meat yeah. thing. Um, so some accounts say there was like they were like really decorated, decorative objects like uh, cups with um, ornaments around. It wasn't like a cheap setup. It was like kind of luxury looking plate looking stuff. Um, and also they found a beautiful young woman. Oh. sitting inside uh they said she was probably around she was young like 18 to 20 years old um she was about 1.5 meters tall which is about four point it's almost five feet tall almost short. so she was quite short petite she had red hair and eyebrows um i guess they mentioned her eyebrows were also red 
so you know that it was her hair wasn't just dyed red. Um, it's a little it bit like, specific, but yeah, okay. Yeah, it was very specific, but just... Um, she had, like, long hair, but her hair was also... She had a weave, um, so she had these white extensions on to her hair, um, and they thought the extensions were made of, like, fur or, like, thin kind of white textile, like, fabric strip, strips or streaks. Um, and the hairstyle is, it's not been found in any, like, kind of literature from other cultures. Okay. So it's not like, oh, that's a classic. Mm-hmm. From um, here, are they? Classic Russian hairstyle or something. No. Um, it's pretty unique, pretty different. So she was kind of, um, she, she was not Asian. It sounds like she had, like, pale skin. Uh, she wore these kind of long smooth um kind of light clothing mm-hmm. um from kind of unknown fabrics it says that she could speak she was speaking to them but she didn't speak japanese mm. uh no one recognized the language that she was speaking she didn't understand them either um so no one could ask her any questions about where she was from um they said she was like pretty friendly and courteous uh she was always holding this box made of a pale material um i assume that means it wasn't wooden or they Hmm. would have said oh it was a wooden box um it was about 24 inches on each side Um, how much is 24 inches sorry my inch game is kind of (laughs) well i'm saying it's like the length of my forearm okay uh but you can check at home. <laughs> so she wouldn't allow anyone to touch the box, um, no matter Very how nice. nicely they asked or uh, or forcefully. Uh, she just kept it with her and wouldn't let anyone look at it. Okay, 24 inches is 60 centimeters. 60 centimeters. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there we go. Uh, so, so eventually, you know, like, what do you do in a case like this? Well, you call the village elder... Uh, who will figure out what to do. And um, after reading this, I absolutely want this job. Mm-hmm. Village uh, elder. <laughs> as village elder. Uh, because basically you're like the one person who gets to just make stuff up. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, like when logic and facts just aren't enough. Uh, make your own. Yeah, there's like one person who's allowed to make up a story so a that, it, that everyone else can just get on with their lives. Like... Everyone else has to f- tell the truth, but this one person can just um, come up with something. Hmm. So I think we still need this in modern society. Well, we have tons of them. <laughs> Haven't you been to the internet lately? <laughs> True. Uh, maybe we have too many. Then. Too many others. Yeah. They lost their value. <laughs> it's just too many of them. So this is what he... I guess it's a he. Could be a she. This is what the person, the elder came up with. Um, so they said, oh, um, I think this is a princess from a foreign country who was married in her homeland, but she obviously had an affair with a commoner (laughs) after the marriage. And this was just such a scandal that the lover had to be killed as a punishment. And, um, you know, you can't kill a princess, but you can definitely ban them. Um, so she's obviously been That's banned. True. That's kind of what they did. 
and uh, you know she must have been well liked and enjoyed a lot of sympathy so she escaped the death penalty herself but you know not really because they put her on this little boat in the middle of the <laughs> ocean so she if she was ex- exposed for this affair she would have had to leave in the Utsurabune and, and be left to destiny and if this is true, then the box probably contains the head of her deceased lover. What? <laughs> and so he says, uh, he or she says, in the past, you know, a very similar object with a woman w- washed ashore on a close by beach, which I'm like, um, hello, this has happened before. <laughs> um, why, like, why don't we have that story? <laughs> yeah, during this previous incident, he says, like, this, there was a small board with a head pinned to it. Um, and that was found, which I'm glad they switched to the box method. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he thought this could be the same situation, which, I mean, how many princesses having affairs are being banished with the heads of their dead lovers and then met? mysteriously washing up on the shores of Japan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Makes no sense. The odds are, I'm gonna guess, pretty slim. It's like... Oh. <laughs> Where is this princess supposed to be from? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, he ultimately just says, like, look, it's gonna be too expensive to try to figure this thing out mm-hmm. any further... So here's what here's the best thing we should do. Um, just put her back on the boat, uh, seal we'll it up, and um, you know let let her let life take its course. What? Um, so it, he said that it, that's tradition. Um, you know it might be cruel, but it seems to be her destiny. Um, oh my so I guess they had like. I guess that it was sealed, like the whole vessel was kind of sealed and watered tight. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had taken the glass parts out to like let her out of the boat and to look around inside. So they sealed it back up and uh, they just set her adrift in the ocean. That's so mean. <laughs> so in terms of theories about this case... Um, why you're not satisfied with the elders <laughs> I'm not so satisfied. I mean, I guess I suppose it could happen, but uh, you know. Um, in recent years, it's been, in, as I mentioned, interpreted as a close encounter of the third kind. Like, she was from another planet, and um, She was an alien princess. Yeah, based on like this, like the basic shape of the Utsuro Bune boats. They mm-hmm. think it was like, oh, well, that's obviously like a UFO, like flying saucer <laughs> shape. But it wasn't actually flying, was it? It was floating. Yeah. yeah, no one ever saw it fly. So it's not a UFO as we know it. It's a, what's a UFO is this for? Unidentified flying object? So it was unidentified floating object? Oh, it's still an F. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there is like an actual term, um, like a USO, unidentified submarine object. But it wasn't but, actually submarine yeah, either, it never, right? They never saw it, like, pop up out of the water. Yeah, it was um, floating. It, it was just fun. sounds like it was, like, a floating prison cell, yeah. basically. Very um, luxurious one, but... Yeah, very luxurious until, like, their food runs out, um, I guess. <laughs> they 
batshit crazy. So they, the ufology community notes that like the mysterious symbols kind of seen on the inside of the Utrobune seem to be similar to what was reported in this famous case, I think it's from the 80s in England, the Rendlesham Forest incident. But there's no like proof to compare them. I mean, they don't know what the actual symbols were. Mm-hmm. Um, so they also suggest that like the box um, of the woman, the box a woman held, and like the her physical appearance being so unique, and the clothing she wore. Well, she was obviously from another planet, um, but you know, they don't really kind of listen to ethnologists or, or other kind of anthropological anthropological sources mm-hmm. about that. So there's no reason to think like, oh, she was wearing weird clothes, so she's from another planet, you know? And it doesn't seem like the boat was made of like unknown materials. It seemed like they recognized all of the materials that the boat was made of like glass and wood and metal they just it was just like in a weird shape and hmm. like a weird configuration for them so the option beyond that is like well maybe it's folklore like maybe it's true or partly true or a hoax um this kind of like raised eyebrows the story itself raised eyebrows early on so the first historical investigation was conducted in 1844. So the event itself is recorded as taking place in 1803. Um, the first publication was 1825, and then by 1844, they're already like calling it as possible BS in a way. <laughs> um, so this took place by Kyokute Bakin, who lived from 1767 to 1848. So this is like fully in his own time that this whole thing happened. So it's not like we're sitting here in 2016 trying to imagine what life was like in 1803. It's someone from that actual time in their own time investigating it. Mm. So he reports... Uh, in a book called Roshia Buku and Roku that um, it's it's the title translates is like record seen of things seen and heard from Russia. Um, he describes like traditional Russian clothes and hairstyles that mentions like a popular method of uh, putting dust like white powder in the hair. He also finds like mentions that many russian women have like naturally red hair Mm -hmm. i don't know that that's true but um he thought it was i have it more than in japan yes yeah compared to japan you know it's probably red -er than they would have been used to Hmm. it also says that uh you know they would have worn skirts similar to the lady of legend in the legend um, so based on that book, he concludes that um, the women, the woman in the Utsurabune incident could have been Russian. He thinks that the three different written accounts um, are similar. Though they're similar, they do have differences between the three accounts. So one of them says that she had 
3.6 liters of water. Another says like 36 liters of water. Hmm. Um, so I don't know if he means that to be like, oh, maybe this has been elaborated over time. Like this was an existing folktale that people have changed and manipulated over time. Hmm. Or maybe it was just a regular tiny boat. <laughs> a tiny boat. Um, with, with someone washed up on. Yeah. yeah. With a little girl locked inside. And then they just made it fancier and fancier. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if she even had to be locked inside. Like, she could have just been in a boat. <laughs> well, that's true. Well, <laughs> I guess if you're in a boat by yourself, you're kind of yeah, locked, this, even if you're not locked yeah, in there. Like, where are you going to go? Yeah, the sea is pretty isolating in itself. Um, you also have to look at the story from the context of the time. So ironclad like western ships were just then re-entering the like popular yeah. culture of japan in the early 1800s and they would have been iron ships with like metal plates mm -hmm. on the base and there would have been like exposure to like western writing like written writing and culture mm -hmm. so they may have just been aware of like these new things like these oh strange symbols that are other written languages and boats that have metal plates on the sides. So they may have taken this existing folk story of a woman um, washing up in a boat and just changed the details about the boat to match these like new foreign things mm -hmm. that were kind of on the wind. He also questions the symbols um, because he thinks the symbols found inside the boat because he thinks they were similar to like a British whaling ship that had been found, uh, washed up similar sort of around that time. He thinks that the woman could have been a Russian or British or American princess. I don't know why he's still holding on to the princess idea, but he sort of is upset that the drawings, there are actually like quite a few drawings of the Utsuro Bune from that time that would appear in the print publications. Um, but he says that they don't match the actual written descriptions. Hmm. Further investigations were done uh, over the years. So in, also in 1925 and 1962 by ethnologist and historian Yanagida Kunio. And he found even more discrepancies between the existing folk stories mm -hmm. and the actual written Utsurbone accounts. So he says that like actually like circle-shaped boats aren't unusual in Japan um, from like very early dates. Really? So I think uh, even today in Sadoshima, if you know Kodo the Taiko drumming, uh -huh. there's a big festival every year in Sadoshima in August and around that island, they still use these like circular boats. Um, that they they don't go far out into the water. It's just by the shore, mm -hmm. and the people just have like one big stick, and they like push against the <laughs> like a gondola. Kind of, yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't, think... it, it doesn't go into like rough water. I don't obviously, know. it's just a circular sh boat. It's so hard to imagine. I think more <laughs> of like a raft. Yeah, the ones I've seen, like the Sadoshima ones, are like a big tub. It's like a, just a big floating wooden tub. It makes me think, yeah, or like, <laughs> you know, there's, there's little um, wooden 
containers that Japanese people used to take to the centos to the public baths. Yeah. If you've seen anime, they're like this yeah. little wooden, like, little wooden... W- like a barrel, but just the bottom. Yeah, like half a barrel. Yeah. Yeah, that's what the ones on Sado look like to look, me. Oh, they look like that. Okay. Yeah, like a big version that people could sit in. Mm, okay. And somebody would just like push it around with a stick. <laughs> like a big pole or something. Um... So I guess that he's referring to the idea that, yeah, no big deal, just a circular-shaped boat. And he thinks, as I was mentioning, only the Western-like details would, were different. Like the mm. windows, like glass windows on a boat they didn't have, and the protective metal plates around the bottom were in, like exotic new things, like new boat materials mm-hmm. for them. So he just thinks they added those on to, like, maybe existing mm-hmm. folk stories. It sounds like a fairy tale. Especially mm-hmm. if you add then the, the elder's theory of what was it. Yeah, like, that one sounds pretty fanciful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he did, and as you mentioned, like, he did find, like, legends similar to that. Uh, so someone finds a strange girl or a young woman inside a circular boat... And um, they rescue the stranded person or they send them back. So they were like historical folk tales that mm-hmm. are sort of similar. Yanagida, he also points out that the oldest versions of the story, like from oral tradition, like folktale tradition, um, they describe the boat as uh, like very humble, like wooden boats made of logs in a circular shape without um, any dome on top. Mm-hmm. So that he says, like, oh, it's just a new take on a Well, in this case, story. the girl was a princess, so she deserved a, a more beautiful boat. Um, so, with luxuries and stuff. <laughs> so I think he says that even that part is not new. Oh. Like, they had some stories... Like historical stories where there was a princess. Uh, let me see. Huh. Yeah, there's a well-known Japanese legend related to the origin of the Kawano dynasty. And this is from like the 7th century, so <laughs> much, much earlier. Yeah. Uh, where a fisherman named Wakegoro uh, from Gogo Island, he finds a 13-year-old girl inside an utsurobone. Like, um, it's just a general term for like these kind of un gnome mm-hmm. circular boats um she's drifting at sea he brings her to land uh where she tells them she's the daughter of the chinese emperor and that she's been forced to flee to escape her stepmother um the fisherman names her wakehime or mm-hmm. princess wake and he raises her as his own um before she marries uh imperial prince of Iyo province and hmm. they give birth to a son named Ochi Miko, who is the ancestor of the Kawano dynasty. A part of this folk tale says that she was the first person to bring silk worms to Japan, like silk cocoons. Oh, okay. Um, so the birth of the Japanese silk industry is traced to this folk tale. Um, and Princess Wake is still worshipped in uh, some Shinto shrines in the village of Funakoshi in Gogo Island, which is where she was, mm-hmm. I think it's where Shikoku, she where she's supposed to have landed. Uh-huh. So it does fit kind of neatly with some of these earlier stories. 
And it's also good to note that they've often disputed, researchers over the years have disputed the location that it actually took place because the cities or the locations mentioned in the text, they aren't actually kind of traceable to real historic locations. Um, and there's nothing about this incident recorded in the historical text. Mm -hmm. Like the local government hasn't recorded like a foreigner washed up on shore in uh, this remote fishing village, whereas mm. by imperial order at that time, like mm -hmm. any uh, foreign activity on Japanese soil would have been reported and recorded um, mm -hmm. in the local by the local government. But also I wonder, because they do mention that her hair and eyebrows are red, uh -huh. they don't say anything like about her eyes or her... They say the skin, but the skin was fair, which yeah. a lot of... Yeah. A lot of Asian people have fair skin. Yeah, it's and not then, really a racial ethnic thing necessarily. Yeah, and I, that's what makes it sound even more fantastic to me. Like it was mm -hmm. a tale, because if it if it had been an actual foreigner, uh -huh. and especially a natural redhead, they will have been. Oh, she had like round eyes that uh -huh. were blue or green or whatever. Do you think they would have actually described her as a foreigner? Like yes. they specifically said, like, oh, this lady was. A Western-looking foreigner. Yeah. Um, so in my in my head, when I think about it, it's more of it. It feels more fantastic because I think mm -hmm. they were describing her just as a a Japanese person with red hair. Right. A non-Japanese-speaking Japanese person Ooh, <laughs> with well, red hair, or another Asian person. Well, well, an Asian person. Yeah. More. Yeah. With, more like an Asian person, a Japanese person, an hair. Asian person. In sort of unusual-looking clothing. Yeah. Um. Hmm. Yeah, good point. Um, well, if you kind of take the points that the debunkers say and kind of subtract that from the story, uh, then what you have left is maybe like a non-Japanese woman in this circular boat that washes up on Japanese shores. It sounds like even without the metal plates, it's not really the kind of shape of boat or type of boat for the open ocean. No, it will flip <laughs> yeah the there's no um it doesn't sound like it had any like way to steer itself or propel itself yeah it sounds like literally it was, yeah, it was just a bowl bales uh, no, no no what what's the name of those things the white things that dinghies what white things <laughs> the fabric <laughs> thing is in ships oh sails sails yeah. oh my god i couldn't remember <laughs> the word um yeah it doesn't have like any way to catch wind power or like I mean, I don't know if it even had, like, oars she could move, like, row. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, if it did, like, even rowboats have, like, a pointed end to, like, cut through the mm -hmm. resistance of the water. So, but if it was a prison and it was just for her to die on, maybe they, there was they, no point, you know? They it was didn't just bother. Let, let make yeah. her float and the bird and sea and yeah. eventually die. It should be noted that, like, uh, recently, over the last year... Uh, there have been a number of boats washing up on Japan hmm. with uh, bodies inside. Um, I don't know if you've been following this story no. of the North Korean ghost ships. No, that sounds awful, scary, and depressing. Yeah. Um, the last year, I think there were like a number of seven ships that kind of floated up on Japanese shores but in a totally different part of Japan. Mm -hmm. So this happened on the 
south side of Japan, uh, not the side facing China, not the side facing Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no kind of landmass where someone could float kind of up into Japan from mm-hmm. that direction. But in the last year, there have been, I think, these seven ships that have Korean writing and they've had like bodies on them. Uh, sort of a, a, a new mystery about where these people came from, but they think they were, there might be like a famine or a lack of food in North mm-hmm. Korea and that they've been sending fishing boats out further than they normally do and that the people maybe just um, got lost. lost or caught up in storms or something. But actually quite a number of ships that have washed on Japanese shores that's so sad. Um, they had, you know, North. Uh, they had Korean writing, mm-hmm. and I think they thought some of the IDs were probably North Korean mm. or something. So yeah, I mean, historically, it's not unusual for people to kind of wash onto Japanese shores by boat. But I don't know if that's what happened in this case. Hmm. So, finally. Uh, we get to the case of Miyuki Hatoyama. So, uh, Miyuki Hatoyama is the wife of the former prime minister of Japan, mm-hmm. um, Yukio Hatoyama. Uh, he was prime minister in 2009 um, for a very short period of time. It was uh, actually recently Japan has had like a lot of turmoil and changes of government um, pretty rapidly. Um, before the current Abe government. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she is kind of unique in her outlook on life. She's a former actress, um, and she claims that she had a close encounter with aliens and traveled to Venus um, while she was sleeping. Okay. So she didn't. She wasn't abducted. I think she went willingly. <laughs> she says, um, and she published this all in like an autobiography. Um, it was titled "Very Strange Things I've Encountered." Is that I wonder the... <laughs> what her husband thinks about her. I, he, oh, yeah, he likes it. He likes it. Yeah. Um, okay. So this took place. She says like twenty plus years ago. Uh-huh. Um, so they. She was married to a different person. Oh, at okay. the time. They. Her husband, the former prime minister. They're both second marriages for uh-huh. them. Both of them, I think. Um, so what she says happened was while she her physical body was asleep, um, she rode on this like triangular shaped UFO to Venus, and. She says it was awesome. She says it was really beautiful and really, really green. Um, this is despite the science of how Venus is like physically is. Yeah. It's um, the hottest planet in our solar system. Yeah. Um, even though it's not the closest to the sun, it has like a really dense atmosphere, so it traps the heat like global warming uh-huh. on Venus. So I think... Temperatures on Venus range like from four hundred. Uh, yeah, it says it's like eight hundred and seventy degrees Fahrenheit in the shade. <laughs> there is no shade, but um, <laughs> but there was a shade. Yeah, four hundred sixty-five degrees Celsius. Um, it's like the normal average temperature is hot enough to melt lead. 
Um, they we have sent probes. I think there have been several Russian uh, probes sent to Venus, but they only last for a couple of hours. They'll burn. Yeah, they just burn up in the atmosphere. But I think you're missing the point because this story. Oh, I'm missing the point. <laughs> you're missing okay. the point of Miyuki. Um, this is a love story. Oh. Um, so she says that when she awoke and told her husband at the time, now her ex-husband, that she'd just been to Venus, he was like, while her physical body slept, he was like, oh, you mean a dream? And um, <laughs> she said that's just not the case with her current husband, uh, the former prime minister. He was. He said like, oh, that's great. <laughs> that, that sounds fabulous. Uh, I could never be married to this woman. Well, you know, I think it's great. There's, um, she's obviously a unique person. Like, at one point, at one of his campaign events, she did the moonwalk. Um, and she also makes her own clothes sometimes from, like, coffee sacks and stuff. She's just a unique person. But he doesn't mind that her sort of idiosyncrasies so... He says about her, you know, he feels relieved when he gets home. She's um, still there. Because she, <laughs> no, she gives him energy. She gives him life. Uh, so he, you know, paints like this idyllic picture of their uh, life together. And they both love animal movies, apparently, <laughs> and prawn crackers. <laughs> <laughs> so they just sit at home eating like shrimp crackers and um, watching animal movies and talking uh, about Venus. But, you know, I think it's great if um, two people in this crazy, weird universe can find each other and appreciate each other. Yeah, to um, be honest, if someone loves you that much to, like, believe of these things you're saying and it's okay with that, yeah. Yeah, it Love that. Like, Enjoy it. You know, they found each other. I, say, I just I wouldn't be able to be married to this woman, <laughs> but that's my personal well, opinion. She would, probably wouldn't want to be married to you. Probably not. That's true. Um, so that is our case. Uh, this is probably our first and last UFO <laughs> episode, really? but I... It wasn't I, actually true crime, but you know, yeah, more weird well, stuff. Well, if you think it was a hoax, then you can... I guess <laughs> that can could be a crime. <laughs> or like, uh, you know, if they slandered someone with publishing, um, you know, the Utsurabune false stories about it. Yeah. But, yeah, that's our case. We're sticking to it. Um, <laughs> tune in in two weeks for mm -hmm. our next case. And in the meantime, please feel free to join our Facebook group. Yeah. Uh, it's a private group, but anyone is welcome. Um, Just request an invite. No, not an invite. Request entry. Request to join, and we will approve it. And there's lots of good stuff there. Yeah. Uh, okay. Bye-bye. See you in two weeks. Bye.